In this episode of Mont Icons, we speak to Professor Gary Foley and activist Jackie Katona. Professor Gary Foley is an activist, academic, dissident, writer, and an actor. He's known for his role in establishing the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra, the Aboriginal Legal Service in Redfern, and he was a key figure in the Black Power Movement, the National Black Theatre, and the list goes on. Jackie Katona is an Aboriginal activist and advocate. Jackie worked with her family to block the uranium mining from Jabaluka in Kakadu National Park. She's worked with the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the Stolen Generations in the Northern Territory. I will foreground this by saying uh, I, as many of us, need to do more. We need to listen more and learn more about the languages, culture and history of First Nations peoples. Um, growing up within the context of a colonial education system, it took me uh, admittedly a long time to find some semblance of the truth, the bloodshed and the horrible history of this place. So thank you for joining us. Um, we're here to learn and be energized by your resilient spirit. Thank you so much. I just want to start by hearing from you both what politicized you in your youth. Um, in my case, um, it's pretty much on the historical record that um, at the age of 17, freshly arrived in Sydney from rural New South Wales, I got um, uh, a rather severe bashing from a couple of thugs from the New South Wales Police Force, more precisely the 21 Division of the New South Wales Police Force. And um, a week or so after that, I was handed a book uh, by a man called Paul Coe. Uh, when I was complaining about what had happened to me, he said, read this. The book was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And those two incidents um, are what, in essence, well, that's where I began uh, my politicisation and my self-education. And what about for you, Jackie? Uh, uh, well, when I was young, probably less than 10 years old, we had moved, my family and I, to Canberra. And it was just around the time uh, that the Tent Embassy had been established. Uh, and the great renewal of public our demonstrations of Aboriginal culture, politics uh, and life was really centre stage for me as a child. Mm. Uh, and I don't, I think a lot of people shared this view of the Whitlam era where we thought that life would continue uh, where Aboriginal people would be genuinely part of Australian society. Unfortunately, that turned out to be more of an aberration mm. um, in the context of broader history and the Liberal coalition, conservative politics. But that really set for me an expectation that black was beautiful. Mm and that publicly it was so important to be uh, within the 
community's vision. And so you moved there from Northern Territory? We moved from the Snowy Mountains. Right. Both my parents worked on the Snowy Mountains Authority. Mm. Um, my mother was removed from her family mm. as a child. So myself and my brother and sister were all born in New South Wales. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I know you, you mentioned travelling from rural into into Sydney and that was quite, there was a lot of Aboriginal people moving from rural New South Wales to the city, right, around that time? Was that right, Gary? Well, it's correct. Um, the old apartheid system that had existed in New South Wales was in the process of uh, breaking up. Um, and my generation was the first uh, generation of Aboriginal people in New South Wales who had um, some degree of freedom of movement. Um, and the nature of the country town in which I was living was such that um, I decided to get out of there. Um, uh, in rural New South Wales at the time, uh, segregation was rife. Um, racism was rife um, and things were very difficult in the country. So I took the opportunity um, when I was offered a job in Sydney as an apprentice drafts person. Um, I grabbed that opportunity but um, upon arrival in Sydney, uh, I got a few very early lessons in what city life was like for uh, Aboriginal people. What did that look like? Could you illustrate that? It looked like Redfern. <laughs> and by that uh, I've I I've been mean, to Ref Redfern and uh, it looks quite, quite well, it different looks quite these different days. different now, yes. <laughs> um, just as Fitzroy looks quite different now. but um, A lot of cafes and avocado yeah. on toast. But in Redfern um, in the late 1960s, from about um, 1967, around the time of the referendum, uh, to 1969, there was this mass exodus of Aboriginal people from the rural areas in New South Wales as the the old concentration camp um, style apartheid system of New South Wales government was breaking up. So this mass exodus of people from the rural areas was mainly uh, people who were, you know, they were landless refugees in their own land, if you like. Um, and the only place in Sydney back in those days where Aboriginal people could find accommodation was uh, in the slums, which is what Redfern was in those days. Um, and so this huge Aboriginal community grew in the space of three years. Um, I've always said that when I moved to Sydney in about 67, end of 66, there were about 1,500 Aboriginal people in Redfern. Within three years there were 35,000 the biggest Aboriginal community that's ever existed in the 80,000 year history of Australia. And the one thing that everyone in that community had in common was poverty. Um, we were many different mobs from many different places. Most had, uh, most of us had sort of grown up and, and been subjected to the old uh, imposed assimilation system that, um, that uh, the New South Wales, well, was federal government policy until 1972 um, and things were tough. But in Redfern in particular, uh, as a young person, the first thing that 
I observed, like just about everybody else arriving in Redfern, was that there was a sort of a state of siege in effect. Um, uh, police harassment, victimisation, brutalisation, picking up people on Trump charges, um, bashing people in their cells was rife. And there was very little, it seemed, that people could do about it. But um, we ended up doing something about it in the long run in the form of uh, what emerged to be the, what they call the Australian Black Power Movement. And w- was there anything that specifically sparked that movement? Was there any specific incidents or was it just there was so much of that going on that people had to kind of collectively galvanise and get together? The roots of it, um, what happened in Redfin in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, rested in the decade or more leading up to it. Um, and it didn't just involve what was going on in in Australia and New South Wales, what was happening to us. We were also conscious. I mean, again, my generation was the first generation of Aboriginal people, probably Australian people, to uh, sort of towards the end of our childhood experience television, which brought to us the world, you know. Prior to that, um, all there was was radio. There was no mobile phones. There was no internet. There was no uh, instant communication. And uh, television exposed um, other things that were happening in the world to us, things that were happening in Africa um, as Africa decolonised. Um, some of the independence movements, we we heard about them on television and we read about them in books. We sought out information. We were interested in what was going on in the world. We were interested in the American Civil Rights Movement because uh, we could see that some of the things that we saw them fighting against, segregation and things like that, these things uh, we'd grown up with. Um, the deeply embedded racism in the United States of America Australia was very much a mirror of that then and today. And so um, um, there were many, many things that led to the Black Power Movement. Reading Malcolm X was a significant thing. Um, We were particularly interested in um, the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. Uh, We saw we were interested in their uh, social programs. We were interested in their breakfast programs for kids, their food distribution things. Do you remember the first time you heard about the Black Panther or you saw what was going on there? Like Um, how did you get that information? Because that would have been hard to come by, right? This is pre-internet days. You couldn't just Google it. How did you come across that that information? Courtesy of the US military. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... In the late 1960s, Sydney became a place where the American military decided was a safe place to send their troops in Vietnam on what they called R&R, rest and recuperation. So suddenly Sydney was awash with these uh, Yank soldiers and a a significant portion of the American soldiers coming into Sydney were African-Americans. We very quickly observed that... um, the cannon fodder the American military was using in Vietnam were African-Americans and poor whites. But many of these African-American soldiers, they arrive in Sydney and they say, hey, where's the black community? There is no black community except for us. And so um, we, many of these soldiers 
came and visited Redfern and established relationships and they brought with them some interesting things. They brought with them really good weed but more <laughs> importantly they brought with them uh, not only the current African-American political literature uh, direct from the States that you couldn't get in Australia but they also brought first-hand um, stories about what was going on in places like Oakland. And they, you know, through them, we, uh, you know, the Aboriginal, the uneducated, poverty-stricken Aboriginal activists in Redfern probably ended up knowing more about what was going on in America in the late 1960s than most Australians. We were uh, very conscious of... Um, what was happening with um, not just the, you know, not just the Black Panther Party. We were particularly interested in them because we actually ended up copying some of their ideas and adapting and adopting them to the Australian context. But um, we're also, that also led us into a greater understanding of other more relevant mobs like the Native American people. We established uh, contact and relations with the American Indians movement. We were blown away by what um, the American Indian movement did with their occupation of Alcatraz and San Francisco mm. Bay. And you could argue in part that was part of the inspiration for the 1972 Aboriginal Embassy. Mm. You know, so we were we were looking at many things that were happening in many other parts of the world that we were, uh, that we thought we identified with. We were analysing them in the context of our own situation that confronted us. And that led us to look at other situations too, like what Fidel and Che Guevara had done in um, in uh, Cuba and what was going on in Cuba and the confrontations that the Cubans were having with the Americans. Um, we were interested in what was going on in Vietnam because, uh, you know, they, I came up, <laughs> my number came up for the draft uh, and um, <laughs> I managed to get out of it but I could have easily been... Uh, conscripted and sent to Vietnam, and I, there was no way I was going to do that in this, in this for the same reason as what, um, in part for the same reason what Muhammad Ali said. He said no Viet Cong ever called me a nigger, and pretty much we felt the same. And so we were watching very closely because we didn't see the Vietnam War and the way in which it was being publicised in Australia by the mainstream. Uh, media has been a, some sort of a war against communists. We saw a people fighting for their own independence, and we we understood and related to to what that meant and why it was important. Because in 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 most ways, we were essentially fighting a similar sort of struggle here. So we related to people who were involved in struggles for their own independence and self determination. We saw. Vietnam in that context and we saw many of the events that were going on in Africa uh, in the same context. We were, you know, when we'd learned of what had happened to Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, mm. um, we were we related to that. And, yeah, absolutely, um, that assassination. Yeah, and so we were at the same time, I mean, the other thing in Redfern in, this, in the late 60s, early 70s, there were a lot of, um, as um, many nations in Africa and Asia decolonised, Many of their future leaders were actually studying at Australian universities and um, we met some of those people and we were able to learn from them also about uh, the details of, of, of their uh, history of colonialism and their struggle against it and um, we formed some pretty long-lasting relationships and also at the same time we were forming contacts and relationships with people, Indigenous people in the Pacific. The, the Maoris in New Zealand, we formed a strong 
uh, connection uh, alliance with a, an organisation called the Ngā Tamatoa, which was uh, pretty much the equivalent of the New Zealand version of the Black Power Movement. Mm. We had connections uh, with Tahiti activists, uh, activists in Kanaki in New Caledonia. We had close relations with some of the future um, leaders and activists from Papua New Guinea and so on, you know. So so we were, we were as a group of young, uneducated Aboriginal <laughs> mob from Bush New South Wales, we um, educated ourselves fairly swiftly and, we, you know, we also had the advantage of having some of the old political fighters in our struggle like Chica Dixon who was a mentor to uh, myself, Jackie and many others in the movement while he was alive and um, uh, so that's more or less how the Black Power Movement came about in Australia, folks. That's awesome. I just want to talk about something we touched on briefly before we entered the studio and that was the police back then being so overtly connected to to crime and the underworld and in turn introducing drugs and particularly using that as a form of weaponising and controlling, um, you know, Redfern. It's still a... Uh a bit of a sensitive sensitive subject 50 years later. Mm. But what I can and will say is that at one point in the early days, I mean, you know, one of the major uh, uh, factors that stimulated a small group of Aboriginal people to come together in Redfern, young people, and talk about what we saw as a problem was, was the issue of police brutality. And in the course of uh, us um, trying to counter, uh, find ways to counter and resist that sort of brutality that was going on, um, we we were we were resisted um, by certain elements in the Redfern Police Force and New South Wales Police Force in our activities, um, and they created a confidential dossier. On us, which had all mm. sorts of outrageous allegations about us, but they were determined to discredit and undermine us. And one of the one of the things we found out in the course of that was that the certain corrupt um, police officers in the New South Wales Twenty One Division were in the process of uh, trying to establish a heroin uh, market amongst Aboriginal people in Redfern, which would have been, um, you know. Uh, a disaster if they'd managed to pull that off in the, at the time when they were trying to do it. We resisted them in this and uh, it's a long story which I don't want to go into but it it did illustrate, the, the con, again, the context in which we were trying to politically organise and operate. I mean, it is now, a, you know, a simple fact of history that um, historians have written about that the Askin government, particularly the period of the Askin government in New South Wales, was one of the most, the Askin government was one of the most notoriously corrupt um, governments in the history of New South Wales, which is really saying something, you know. And not only that, the Askin government as a corrupt government, it necessarily followed, as was later historically proven, that the entire New South Wales police force was riddled with the same sort of corruption. And so we weren't just um, in Redfern up against uh, a simple issue of uh, police uh, beating up blackfellas and uh, trying to keep them in their place. There, are, there were also other insidious factors 
in operation at the same time. And that, and the fact that most of us from the Black Power movement uh, at least made it into the 1980s alive and living was uh, a bit remarkable when you think about what was going on then. Mm. And Jackie, did, where did a lot of your inspiration come from? Did it come from America uh, when you were getting involved in activism or and how did you first come across that information and that inspiration? I had the great advantage of seeing Gary and his contemporaries defend uh, our participation in Australian society uh, in the most basic and fundamental terms that Aboriginal people shouldn't be regarded as being the downtrodden uh, second-class citizens. Uh, that was often the perception in Australian society that we had as much, if not more, to contribute to a better future for all of Australia. Uh, and it was those essential messages that was constantly part of the campaigning that they did um, that really influenced me to believe that that was possible. Mm. Um, I wasn't living on a mission and have no life experience of that type of um, overt control. But I came to understand through the experiences of other members of my family when I was reunited with them in the Northern Territory, I came to understand intimately what overt punishment, uh, dislocation, dispossession and segregation brought about for our people. And it was something that still uh, creates the passion for me mm. to think that uh, discrimination, I mean, discrimination is really uh, somewhat an acceptable word. Discrimination is painful. Discrimination is isolating. Discrimination uh, makes you second guess yourself. And to do that to another human being, I find intolerable. And my motivation to fight for the recognition of rights of Aboriginal people in Australia stems from my understanding of how that impacted my family. How old were you when you went back to the Northern Territory? Well, my mother was reunited with her mother when I was about 16. So it had been 30 odd years since mm. she'd been reunited with her mother. And they were indoctrinated uh, when they were institutionalised as children mm. to believe that their parents had died and believe that if they hadn't died that they were either criminals uh, or prostitutes or in or had fallen uh, prey to alcohol. Mm. So they used Christianity as a vehicle to essentially split the personality mm -hmm. of Aboriginal identity so that everything associated with being Aboriginal 
was to be negative and to be capturing your life in a downward spiral, mm. to discourage children from pursuing a reunion with their family members, but to discourage them from seeing their Aboriginal identity as something positive. Mm-hmm. And the indoctrination was very effective. Uh, nonetheless, there are many Aboriginal people who were able to reunite after many years searching for their families. And my mother was one of those, thankfully. But going back to meet my grandmother for the first time, uh, all I'd seen of Northern Territory Aboriginal communities were on the Four Corners programs, Mm -hmm. which showed Aboriginal people living under corrugated iron with open fires and no other form of housing, uh, still held... Um, economically uh, and institutionally in segregated camps, effectively. Um, And as a young Aboriginal woman who'd seen the advances of campaigning against segregation in New South Wales, to find out that the Northern Territory still harboured those practices and lawful discrimination might have ended, but the, it was set in stone socially mm. and is today to a large extent as well. Uh, that really, uh, there was no other path for me mm. but to take up um, a challenge to the paradigm that mm. continues to subjugate Aboriginal people. And um, Gary, you you tried to challenge that propaganda in a very direct way with theatre and acting and stuff like that. Um, was was that kind of an inspiration for that to try and um, you know let uh, the public reimagine uh, what it what, or try to battle that kind of identity? That um, was it was being... something that I accidentally fell into. I mean, I I saw a theatre production called Jack Charles is Up and Fighting. It was a show put on by an outfit called the Nindathana Theatre. This was an outfit that um, grew out of the old pram factory in Colm. And um, that production featured Jack Charles, Bob Mazza and a Polish actor or Polish-Australian actor called Ollie Lewinsky. Um, I saw that being performed in Canberra must have been at the time of the Aboriginal Embassy at uh, on campus at ANU. And that blew me away. I mean, that was the first time that I saw the possibility of another means of communicating the sort of message that we were trying to get across at the time about self-determination and independence and all the rest of it. And... Um, I've always said I've told Jack Charles to his face on <laughs> numerous occasions, probably more than I should have, that um, seeing him in that uh, production uh, was what made me realise the possibilities. And then not long afterwards, Bob Mazza, when he set up the National Black Theatre in Redfern, which uh, he had drawn inspiration from the National Black Theatre in Harlem, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bob Mazza, Bruce McGuinness, Sol Valair, Jack, Davis and Patsy Corowa 
um, were a deputation of Aboriginal people in, to a Black Power conference in Atlanta, Georgia in 1970. And on the way back, Bob Maz had called into Harlem, was blown away by what he saw of black theatre in, in Harlem, came back, set up the National Black Theatre Company in Redfern and he conned me into <laughs> uh, being part of this stage production they were doing called Basically Black. And um, being in that show, uh, I saw even more dramatically because, you know, you, you act in a film or something, you're there on set for five minutes and you're gone and you maybe see yourself on screen a year or two later. But with theatre, you had that instant feedback and given how intensely political and outrageous Basically Black was as a show and so confronting for white audiences of that era, I mean, black, Basically Black would still be, well, he's still confronting for some people when they see the TV version these days, you know, 50 years later, but the TV version was a watered-down version of the stage production and... To, to be able to get that instant feedback and see what worked and see what didn't and, and uh, uh, you know, talk to the audience afterwards was a brilliant thing. Uh, I still think that basically Black's the only good thing I ever did in my acting career, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if one could call it a career. But, I mean, it, it, we were using every means possible uh, to try and get our message across. The same thing applied when I, when I was in country practice for nine mm. episodes. You know, that was about me trying to get a message across uh, about uh, land rights. But it also was done in the context. Um, just prior to me being asked to be in country, if I wanted to be a, do a guest spot in country practice, I'd been having a, a brawl with these uh, lunatic fringe fundamentalist Christians in South Australia. These evangelists who were roaming around. Um, the northwest of South Australia, evangelising Aborigines and telling them that um, land rights was the work of the devil, and if they they believed in land rights, they would go to hell. And you know, be to be doing something as evil as that, I had a go at them. And when I had a go at them, they attacked back. They put me on the front cover of their magazine, their national magazine. Um, effectively saying that I was an agent of the devil. <laughs> and so we tried to sue him, but we couldn't find the obscure, mysterious man in America who was behind them, you know. So uh, when I was offered the part in country practice, I thought, well, here's a chance for me to get back at these bastards. And so I told country practice that I'd be happy to do a guest spot as long as I could choose my own character. And I said, I want to be an Aboriginal pastor. Christian pastor who advocates <laughs> land rights, you know, and it worked perfectly. I mean, ironically, being in a country practice, I got reached a greater number of Australians with mm. the message I wanted to get across than I've ever reached ever in my life. Well, you that's, know? A, that's an important thing that I kind of wanted to touch on because uh, you were working uh, with the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. Was that also a way of trying to fix the system from within or...? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Anything but. I mean, I, I, I was forced into it. I mean, I'd, uh, I was living in Melbourne. Um, my girlfriend was Hilary Saunders. Her father was the legendary war hero, Aboriginal war hero, Captain Red Saunders. And I went away to China uh, for 
a month. And when I came back from China, I found out that everybody in my house in Melbourne had moved out. <laughs> and uh, so I had nowhere to live. So I, I found out that Hillary had moved back to Canberra. So I went back to Canberra. Uh, her dad let me stay in their house, and I, which I was grateful for. But after a week, he pulled me aside and he said, hey, son, don't you think, don't you think it's time you got a job? I said, oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> got any ideas? He said, and at the time, Reg was working as one of the early established, you know, the earlier uh, Aboriginal employees of the newly created Department of Aboriginal Affairs. And he said, come in on Monday and I'll go in. And, and he talked the boss of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, Barry Dexter, into giving me a job. <laughs> and he gave me a job as a, as a journalist in the public relations section of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, which meant that rather than trying to subvert from within, I found myself writing the departmental propaganda. Uh, and that's largely why I only lasted about six weeks and after three major incidents, um, the last one was too much for Barry Dexter and he sacked me. What was the last one? Can you tell us about what, what went down in that office? Um, I... <laughs> Let me make it clear for a start. Barry Dexter's um, the head of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. His secretary was a guy. Um, and so one day I was told by my boss, Mr Dexter wants to see you about something, you know, minor. And I head up to Dexter's office and I walk into the, into the space where the secretary is sitting behind his desk and I said, hey, is Dexter in? And he looked at me and he said, it's Mr Dexter to you. <laughs> and I went over to his desk and I leaned over him, straightened his face and said, well, is Dexter in? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it's Mr Dexter to you. So I hit him. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other hilarious thing about this, this was at a time about – well, early in the year there'd been a siege at the department where an Aboriginal guy called Bobby McLeod had gone in, with, gone in with a gun and held up the department. And so ever since then there, there's all these security guards, you know, with guns mounted on the 16th floor of the MLC Tower in Canberra and they're supposed to be there protecting this, you know, the head of the department and all the senior staff. And so when I punched this guy in the, in the face... I turned around and I walked out and the security guards did nothing. They just looked at me and stared at me and I got in a lift and went back down to my office only to get back to my office and the phone rings in my boss's desk and she says, Gary, Mr Dexter wants to see you. I said, I think I know what it's about. <laughs> and he sacked me. And as he said uh, 40 years later when we made friends again, Barry Dexter said, that I was the only person that he sacked in his entire 35-year career in the public service. So I'm, I'm really quite proud of that. <laughs> is, it, is it true, I read online, that he, he was also responsible for urging ASIO to, to spy on you? Absolutely. And I mean, I didn't find that out till, um, what is it, 30 years later when, I mean, uh, there was a rule that all Australian government documents, including ASIO files, go to the... National Archives after 30 years. So I waited 30 years and I started reading my ASIO file and I discovered very quickly that the main 
guy who kept on Sewell and Asio onto us was uh, Barry Dexter. Um, and, you know, if I'm to be honest, looking back, reflecting, I can probably see why he thought he was justified in doing that <laughs> at the time, you know, because sometimes we'd, you know, just for fun we'd play jokes on him. If we, was, if we weren't getting a, a, a headline about land rights one week, we'd, we'd do something outrageous to get some headlines, you know. You, all you needed to do was go down to Hyde Park and chuck a bit of black paint over Captain Cook and... The next day, the Daily Mirror would be screaming headlines, black power violence, you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, some of the loose talk that we were doing at the time, I can understand why maybe Dexter and Basio and some of these people got paranoid, but it was rarely anything more than a bit of fun, you I think, know. I think your ASIO file describes you as a, a man capable of violence. Indeed, it does. It's quite shocking, you know. <laughs> If I was reading that about somebody else, I'd think, well, that's a bit outrageous. He's a bass. I won't go near him. Um, but on a serious note, uh, some of the, some of the, I mean, we're talking about Black Panther, uh, Malcolm X, um, autobiography, Che Guevara, La Mamba. I mean, the, you know, direct action and violence was politis- was used as a tool uh, to achieve uh, some some sort of progress uh what do you what do you make of that uh, well all people need to do is re uh, watch malcolm x's speeches on video today they still resonate they still apply the police brutality that uh, the panthers and malcolm x and and half of black america was talking about in the 30s 40s 50s and 60s and 70s is all still there i mean black lives matter movement is simply the latest manifestation of an attempt by African-American people, people of colour in America to draw attention to it. But I think that recent events in uh, America have started Americans at least facing up to the reality of the difference between the way in which the the right-wing lunatics who invaded the Capitol the other day, the way they were... uh, treated by law enforcement authorities, as they say in America, uh, and the difference between what had happened with Black Lives Matter protests, you know, earlier in the year, you know. Even to the most blind American, they can see, you know, that it's there's a difference and at least the debate about race in America, I was saying to Jackie on the way over here, at least the debate about race in America is beginning to happen, there's a there's a there appears to be a bit of a realization occurring, but you know it remains to be seen. But at least that's happening in America. There's no such um, discussion debate in Australia. You know, the best we get is the deputy prime minister when he's asked about the the right wing lunatics who invade uh, Washington. He starts talking about Black Lives Matter. Mm. I mean, you know, and the fact that. He can get away with that with um, no real sort of uh, backlash from mainstream media or mainstream Australian people is, you know, says a lot about still the nature of Australia and their denialism about their own racism. Yeah, I, 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 what it, I mean, this is the the essential question. Like, wh- why do you think we're, we choose to keep it under the rug in, the, in this society? I mean... Oh, Australians have been conditioned uh, 
condition since before Australia was Australia, since before Federation. Australians have been, you know, have still got this settler colonial mentality. They, they just don't understand, you know, and the, they can't even, um, I mean, you mentioned uh, to some historians, oh, a, uh, uh, a massacre occurred, occurred here or somewhere. They'll challenge and deny, you know, and they'll, the denialism is still rife within the history departments of Australian universities, within uh, almost the entire Australian education system, um, and there's an inability uh, by public people and politicians to, to speak honestly about the issue of racism. Most of them are not even conscious of... Uh, the term white privilege, let alone know what it means, you know. And so we're we're very retarded as a country in that sense, you know. And the, the, the level of debate in Australia about issues of race is still very much on a juvenile sort of level and very unsophisticated and still very frustrating for somebody who's been around 50 years trying to correct that. Mm. And I just wanted to ask, um, just while we're kind of on that subject, what was your perspective on the way that um, local groups um, responded to Black Lives Matter here in Australia? Um, it was It's quite recent, so I just wanted to hear how both of you um, felt about that. I think the general response uh, to the issue of Black Lives Matter in Australia has been a long time coming. Uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which both Gary and I worked on uh, in the late uh, 1980s, uncovered um, systemic racism, which was named by the Royal Commission. Uh, and the Royal Commission also investigated the issue of genocide of Aboriginal people. And the fact that uh, frontier conflict was the underlying basis of the relationship, which was which had been continued uh, in practice by the police force, being the front line for the protection of the colony. Uh, and this is writ large in Australian society for every Aboriginal person. So for there to be this latent embryonic recognition in Australia uh, gave it a bit of a context of a fad um, and we're still waiting to see any genuine outcomes in spite of numerous investigations, inquiries, parliamentary scrutiny, public uh, disdain and outcries, there still is no change to uh, the indiscriminate killing of Aboriginal people either at the hands of police or the hands of corrections staff. What, what do you, what, how, how do we respond to this? Like how has there not been a single conviction against any member of the police against any of these deaths in custody? Because politicians are scared of police unions. Uh, police unions who are backed up by... Uh, in Australia, it is it is literally mostly Murdoch tabloids. Uh, any election, any state election campaign anywhere in Australia, to this day, 
one of the key um, major issues according to the tabloid media and tabloid radio is law and order. You know, and and every political campaign, there's uh, promises of stronger and more uh, stringent measures, more powers for police, and then people wonder why the people on the margins of society, the poor and the non non whites, uh, end up being the uh, victims of these, you know, increased sort of laws. But the other important thing. Jackie mentioned the Royal Commission in Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Now, this was a multi-million dollar comprehensive investigation of um, uh, a, a large number of Aboriginal deaths in custody up until the time of the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission found, as Jackie said, that uh, probably the major problem of it all came from the fact that the Australian criminal justice system uh, is systemically racist from the highest court in the land right down to the uh, sole copper in some country police station. The culture is one of racism. And that's, I mean, it's a scandal that 30 years after the Royal Commission, whose major recommendations were designed at preventing Aboriginal people from going to prison in the numbers that they were, because 30 years ago we had one of the highest incarceration rates of any peoples on earth, the incarceration rates were supposed to, according to the, if the recommendations of the Royal Commission had been adopted, should have reduced the um, incarceration numbers. Instead, we've got almost twice as many Aboriginal people in incarcerated today than there were at the time of the Royal Commission. The systemic racism of the Australian criminal justice system has managed to contain and prevent any significant changes from coming about. And I've said for a long time that if people want to know what the status of Aboriginal people in Australia today is, just look at the incarceration rates. We are one of the most imprisoned people on earth and most Australians are, you know, happily oblivious to this and they don't give a damn, nor do the politicians. In fact, the politicians, I'll save my comments on politicians. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a very terrifying to hear you say, you say that, that sentence. Well, I mean, two of my grandchildren are incarcerated as I speak, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a problem and an issue that affects all Aboriginal families in the same way as the um, stolen children issue affects every single Aboriginal family in this country, so too does the incarceration rates of Aboriginal people in this country. And it doesn't matter how flash and how big a professor or, or you know, how good a, um, <laughs> how good a uh, big flash black car you drive, uh, you still your family is still going to be touched by this. Yeah, it's, I mean, for me, even growing up in suburban Melbourne, I often think about this. The first time I met an Aboriginal man was in, in prison. Like, that was the most, just thinking back on that, it's such a fucking tragic thing to, and the first conversation I had was with a Muslim convert Aboriginal man who was in, in prison. That's it's such a sad thing. And, and if, if we talk about, yeah, the state of, uh, I mean, all of the supermax prisons in Melbourne and uh, New South Wales are full of Muslims. Like, mm. uh, so it's like this strange, t 
telltale sign that something deeply is going wrong with our relationship to the I country. mean, the, the deep thing that's wrong is, is, in my opinion, very simple. It's racism. I mean, Australia um, has a long way to go in terms of addressing this deep national sort of um, epidemic. Um, and it's going to take a long time, but um, I don't see it. I don't, th- I don't really honestly don't see things improving before I die. And the only reason I say that is because I'm saying I'm going to die in the next five years. <laughs> I hope not. Can we, can we just go back a bit and talk about the uh, Aboriginal Tent Embassy and, and how that came about and, and the ins- yeah, what, what led to that, the formation of that? Well, see, this Black Power movement I've been talking about um, really began to have impact by the beginning of 1971. Um, we were getting organised. We'd managed to create uh, an Aboriginal legal service in Redfern, which uh, we thought might uh, be an answer to police harassment, at least provide some sort of legal pr- protection for those who are being arrested. Uh, we'd created um, not only the Redfern Aboriginal Medical Service, the first community-controlled Aboriginal health service in Australia. Um, we created a children's breakfast program, stealing an idea from the Black Panthers. Uh, the National Black Theatre was up and running, so we were on a roll. And um, throughout 1971, uh, growing numbers of people were joining us in our big land rights marches that we were having. And then in 1971, the Springbok Tour of Australia happened and that was a crucial moment. This was a group of white South African rugby players uh, uh, told by their Prime Minister, John Vorster, that they were ambassadors for apartheid. And the football tour of Australia that followed drew out large numbers of anti-apartheid demonstrations. Um, And we challenged those anti-apartheid demonstrators. We said, how come you're so concerned about racism over there and not at the same time being prepared to address the same issue here in your own backyard. And so as a result, large numbers of people from the anti-apartheid movement began joining our marches to such an extent that by the end of 1971, the Prime Minister of Australia, Billy McMahon, a tragic, pathetic little man, (laughs) (laughs) um, was panicking in Canberra, you know, the issue of Aboriginal land rights was being, uh, you know, on the front pages nationally, major marches in every city, uh, was even attracting international media attention. And so the Prime Minister thought that the obvious solution to this problem was for him to make a policy statement for his government on land rights. He chose to make that statement on the fateful day of Invasion Day, 26th of January. I mean, it was a really stupid thing for him to do. Uh, he made an announcement on Invasion Day in 1972, my government will never grant Aboriginal land rights. Aboriginal people reacted instantly in Redfern, sent a deputation of uh, guys to Canberra to set up a protest on the lawns of Parliament House, get a photo taken for the newspapers the next day, and we expected, they'd de- we expected that they would get arrested and that we'd go down the next day and bail them out. But as luck, historical luck would have it, the police arrived and told the boys that there was in fact no law against camping on the lawns of Palmer House. The boys had accidentally discovered a loophole in Canberra law. 
And the police said that as long as there was only 11 tents on that lawn, there's nothing they could do and would do. And so for the next six months, we set up an 11-tent compound, which we called the Aboriginal Embassy. It was called the Aboriginal Embassy because Tony Curry, one of the founders of the embassy, said that uh, the Prime Minister's statement denying us land rights is effectively deeming us aliens in our own land. If we're aliens in our own land, we'll have an embassy like all the other aliens. Only our embassy will be a tent here on the lawns of Parliament House to remind every politician that walks out of that gas works across the road that we're here and we're not moving. And the Aboriginal Embassy uh, created such a, a major crisis for the McMahon government that it ended up bringing them down in December that year. But uh, after six months, the you know international publicity from 72 media organisations from around the world the Prime Minister again got nervous. And he said, I've got to do something about them blacks across the road. And so stupidly advised by his Attorney General, he uh, created a special new law, making it illegal to camp on the lawns of Parliament House. And the police um, came and knocked down the embassy three times in a row over a three-week period. Whoa. We kept on putting it back up. Uh, they kept on knocking it down. And in the end... Uh, on the final occasion, we decided we'd, uh, we'd achieved our purpose. We'd gone to Canberra six months earlier just for the purpose of getting a photo when, in fact, through circumstances, we'd managed to alert the entire world about what was going on in Australia, that there was a struggle for justice in Australia. There was a struggle for land in Australia. It had to do with the Indigenous people. The whole world now knew. And more importantly, six months later, as a direct result of the Aboriginal Embassy, uh, the Whitlam government not only, well, he he ended officially the Australian government policy of assimilation for Aboriginal people. The policy of assimilation, as Whitlam was told by Paul Coe of the Aboriginal Embassy, the policy of assimilation, assimilation equals genocide, you know. Mm. And uh, so Whitlam, the Aboriginal Embassy changed the course of Australian history by bringing to an end what had been uh, almost three quarters of a century of a policy of assimilation. And we had great expectations that things would change in the immediate aftermath, aftermath of that. Unfortunately for us and for Australians, the CIA intervened. <laughs> Is that so? Ask Christopher Boyce, folks. Go and look but Christopher Boyce. Christopher Boyce is my source on that. Whoa. I'll send you the info, mate. Please do. And within a year of Gough Whitlam uh, dying, his widow, Margaret Whitlam, made it very clear that she believed that the CIA was involved in Whitlam's dismissal. And there is, there is sufficient evidence for me as a historian to make such an assertion on your good little podcast here. <laughs> What do you make of um, this this idea that a foreign government has intervened in Australian politics and no one knows about this or really? It's not as if no this. one knows about it. I mean, you know, yeah. SBS had an interview with Christopher Boyce in which he detailed. This is after he got out of jail. They caught him in America. He was uh, the film, The Falcon and the Snowman, is about Christopher Boyce. Um, uh 
it's, you know, this guy was working for a, uh, a CIA organisation and he was encountering the CIA traffic from Australia in the lead up to the Whitlam um, downfall. And uh, he was uh, subsequently arrested for espionage uh, because he was given this information to the Russians. <laughs> but he did 36 years in, in prison. And when he came out, SBS did an interview with him. If anyone wants to look at that interview, send me an email and I'll send you the link. But uh, in that interview, Christopher Boyce, for the first time since 1975, uh, spoke in a bit more detail about what had happened and what was going on. That is, it, it, but does does any of that sort of stuff make you nervous? You know, when suddenly you're involved in a in a game that's loaded with all sorts of nefarious actors, the CIA, you know, um, people that have been well. Luckily, luckily, <laughs> I came to realise a lot of the players in the game only thirty years later. If I'd have known who we were up against at times in the old days, maybe <laughs> maybe we would have been a bit more careful about what we said. Mm. But despite, you know, despite all the intense surveillance that ASIO had us under, I mean, you know, um, we came out of it um, looking pretty clean in terms of all of the political stuff we were being accused of. Mm. Um, you know, the big, again, the big co- uh, complicating factor of our era that was that we were we were involved in stuff at still the height of the Cold War, which, you know, um, um, dirty sort of politics all over the world at the time, you know, this whole anti-communist fervour, you know. Mm. Uh, whereas from our point of view, um, uh, there were elements within the Communist Party who were very supportive of what we were doing. And I'm talking now particularly of the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation the only person who went to jail from the Aboriginal Embassy con- confrontations with police was a, 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 a white member of the Builders Labourers Federation in New South Wales. Wow. The Communist Party in the 1930s had a, had a manifesto on Aboriginal rights that was the strongest of any political party that any political party has ever had in the history of Australia, including the Black Power Movement. The Communist Party in the 1930s was advocating full nationhood status for Aboriginal peoples that uh, they be given a significant portion of Australia to administer themselves in accordance with their own laws and customs, that they be enabled to uh, have a, an, a, a navy and, a, and an army and a police force and that they be able to establish diplomatic relations with neighbouring countries such as Australia. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, and many of the older activists in our, who were, you know, some of our mentors and advisors, some of the old Aboriginal political activists amongst us had been members of the Communist Party. At that time and during that period when the Communist Party was strong in Australia, and in fact, if you want to again look at uh, the history, uh, the fir- very first major national public campaign against police brutality to Aboriginal people was organised by the Darwin branch of the Communist Party in 1934. You know, so we we weren't fooled by all of this uh, uh, nonsensical uh, American propaganda about commies being, you know, mm. under every bed. You know, many most Australians were, but we weren't fooled by that sort of nonsense. 
Jackie, you uh, took on another type of nefarious uh, empire, the, the mining, the miners. Um, could we talk a bit about the first time you heard about Jabaluka? Um, and yeah, because that, yeah, just uh, the first time you heard about uranium mining that was about to take place in, in Jabaluka. Well, <clears throat> I can remember hearing about uranium mining at a mine called Ranger Uranium Mine uh, when I was quite young in the 80s. Um, and it was one of the things that my mother discussed and the fact that Aboriginal people were receiving a royalty income. And I couldn't help but be feel as if people then had to live with a lifelong legacy of pollution. During the 1970s, a, um, there had been significant international debate about the nuclear fuel cycle. And as a primary school student, we were participating in dr drills of what we should do as primary school children if in the event of a nuclear attack. So this was something that was well known and spoken about in normal public discussion. And to know that my family was not just participating in that, but would be subject to the pollution from uranium mining made me feel like uh, they were uh, being treated like second-class citizens, that there was no ultimate benefit. Um, little did I know that there was not just Ranger Uranium Mine, there were three other mines also that were permitted uh, to begin extracting uranium ore in the same area. Um, when I moved back to Darwin um, in my early 20s, um, I had, you know, the opportunity to spend a lot of time with my family and to find out more about myself, I suppose, mm. through that reunion. But the inability of them to control uh, the activity on their land mm -hmm. that they had received title for, that their rights to land were recognised under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, yet their power in decision-making terms was minimal. Um, and I felt that perhaps I was in a position where I could provide them with some sort of assistance. There are a combination of epic issues that occurred to enable uranium mining to take place. In the area known now as Kakadu National Park, it was once called the Uranium Province. Aboriginal people were fringe dwellers along the roadside, really, in the face of the development of these mines. Uh, Aboriginal people challenged the agreements that were made on their behalf without any success. Uh, and I went on to find out about the deficiencies in the legal frameworks that continues to subjugate Aboriginal people mm. so that the 
ability to say that you have rights over your land is really cosmetic, especially when it uh, flies in the face of a greater political will. And in the case of Canberra at the time, it was the Malcolm Fraser government who ensured that the opposition of my family, the Mirar people, uh, was not going to be taken into consideration and that an agreement would be signed on their behalf in spite of them not approving, in spite of them holding the legal power to veto mm -hmm. the mine going ahead. So, I mean, Australia was committed to be a player in the international politics and by having the uranium ticket, it gave them a capacity, a certain political capacity on worldwide terms. And if the interests of the Mirar people were to be sacrificed to achieve that, then they saw that uh, as immaterial mm. to the interests of the rest of Australia. And we're seeing 40 years later the legacy of that for people locally who only last week when the um, operations of the mine ended, uh, they now are in the invidious situation where for many thousands of years the toxic waste as a result of mining could directly impact places where they hunt food, places mm. where they draw water um, and already we're seeing an increase in the cancer rates amongst Aboriginal people in the area. Of course, you know, suddenly there are no scientists who can uncover why this is the case. Mm. It all seems to be um, somehow incidental. But Aboriginal people not only experienced the powerlessness and in the irony of gaining rights to their land, but now they wrestle with their own mortality as a result. And when I, in 1996, when mm. the Howard government came to power, they encouraged Energy Resources of Australia to put forward a proposal for the dormant at the time, the dormant uh, ore body, Jabaluka. And... Um, so how soon after that did you get involved? It was in the same year. September of the same year, right? Yeah, the same year. Um, and it, it wasn't clear then. I, because an agreement had been secured, again, on behalf of the Mirar people without their approval, it wasn't clear that there would be a legal basis for preventing the mine from going ahead. Uh, but that wasn't going to in any way shape the strategy that we would pursue to prevent mining at Jabaluka. And using their experience of the failings in economic development, because lots of people try to paint a picture of great economic benefit as a result of mining 
And the case of Jabiru is a case in point where people were still living in impoverished circumstances. They didn't enjoy the citizenship entitlements that other Australians did. There was no government housing. Mm -hmm. They could not live in the township of Jabiru unless they were employed. Uh, That township was established for the miners at Rangy Uranium Mine. Aboriginal people literally lived in fringe camps Mm. under corrugated iron and arc mesh with open fires, with if they, luxury was having one tap per house, Mm. an outdoor tap. There was no uh, refrigeration. There were no washing machines. It was the life of... Uh, people who were cast aside by society very obviously. Um, yet, but the Northern Territory Government, the Commonwealth Government and the mining company, all three spoke of the wonderful benefits that could arise as a result of the royalty income from a new mine being Jabaluka. Uh, and I wasn't going to um, be part of any, well, I wasn't going to allow that type of um, campaign of assimilation once again to overwhelm my family in mm-hmm. Kakadu National Park. And even though I was a single mother uh, living in Darwin at the time, I packed up my kids, we moved to Jabiru and I committed to doing everything absolutely possible to end the mining company's campaign to begin Jabaluka. And in fact, the mining company continued to try to call our bluff throughout a six-year campaign that I worked on um, to the point where they created the entrance to the mine. They had constructed the rehabilitation ponds. They had removed what they call the overburden. Not one uh, piece of uranium was ever extracted from the Jabaluka ore body. In spite of them bluffing, as if they had, all their permissions were to secure their production future. Uh, and it, in 2006, they were forced to rehabilitate the mine site. That's a, it was a long battle and it got quite, there was a lot of direct action that kind of I've heard got a bit dangerous at times. There was a lot of direct action. Um, we established a blockade camp in 1997 and I think it might have been 1998. We established a blockade camp and invited Australians who were just as outraged by a new uranium mine located in the middle of Kakadu National Park, people who were just as outraged as us to join us in protesting any development at the mine site. 
and Australians, ordinary Australians, teachers, mm. public servants, uh, tradies, would take time off work, travel up in the bus service that was created and spend two weeks or more at the blockade camp mm. to show their support in protesting on site in Kakadu National Park. That's interesting um, in terms of that's a replication of the sort of support that was expressed for the Gringies when they were, you know, where people from south would go up and build mud bricks or whatever uh, for a little period and then come back south again. This, so it's, a, it's interesting that the same thing happened with Jabaluga. Well, I wasn't aware of that. So there but you yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. That's what why a coincidence. I'm a historian and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was um, an incredible sight to witness um, ordinary Australians lending their support to the Mirar in their opposition. And as I said, no legal leg to stand on, no capacity to prevent the mine going ahead. There are provisions in the Aboriginal Land Rights Act that allow the Northern Land Council to consider uh, and participate in re the renewal of agreements and permissions around uranium mining. And we were all too aware of the times in the past where that had occurred. Uh, so yes, we were very aware of the political nature and the heavy influences that were being brought to bear. But in the end, Rio Tinto, in trying to be a corporate, uh, res a responsible corporate organisation, um, made an agreement with traditional owners to honour the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, mm. not to establish any other thresholds, any additional um, position that Aboriginal people could enjoy their rights, simply to honour the Aboriginal Land Rights Act. And it was only that commitment that prevented the mine going ahead. It's still an asset mm. of the mining company. It's... I mean, if the, the price of uranium went up, it would be very interesting to really? see if they would move forward trying to exploit that ore body. It's in an extraordinarily sensitive wetland area mm -hmm. um, which has worldwide recognition for its biodiversity and its uh, natural values as well as its cultural values. The area known as Maji Bear is the site where definitively Aboriginal people uh, have been proved to occupy Australia for 60,000 years. Wow. That's within the fence of the Jabalu Kalise within the site. So these are issues of great importance to humanity, in our view. More and so today than ever. More so today, especially with the example of the Duke and Gorge and the disregard, the blatant disregard that mm. mining companies have in the face of increased profits for shareholders or that's the excuse that they use. 
Um, but yeah, there were lots of actions which resulted in um, broken bodies at the Jabaluka blockade. They brought in the tactical response group to arrest myself, Yvonne, other women and children. And so there was a lot of intimidatory tactics that were used by the mining company and by the Northern Territory government to protect the mining company's interests. And by the Comprador class. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think it's worth highlighting the deep connection to land and how that's kind of sidelined for capital gain by a lot of corporations that have huge sway over both sides of our political spectrum. But it's happening globally, you know. Look at um, in um, in the Amazon, in Alaska, mm. in, you know, uh, and more often than not it's indigenous peoples, groups that are on the front line in confronting these uh, huge uh, mining uh bodies, you know, and more often than not the Indigenous people who are, who are caught up there in the front line get very minimal or no support, you know, where Indigenous activists are being murdered um, by the dozen in, in um, South America, mm. you know. And women in mm. the majority. Do, do you recall when the... The f when you experienced the first real kind of sacrifice that came from your your either of your movements um, that deeply affected the struggle, I I always f feel like uh, a lot of movements get spurred forward or energized by sacrifice in a very tragic kind of way. Um, well, the thing that I can very clearly remember that. The other factor in politicising me and getting me involved in the campaign we ran against the police, which was the origins of the Black Power Movement, um, when I first moved to Sydney, I said I was a young, naive kid from the bush, um, had no ex real experience of city life. And one of the, well, the person, friend I made, a young Aboriginal guy called Wayne, from a place called Cabbage Tree Island in New South Wales. He was essentially the one who taught me how to survive on the, <laughs> the streets of the, the mean streets of the big city. And um, very early in my friendship with him, I noticed that um, he was being picked up by the police ev literally every Friday or Saturday night and taken to uh, Regent Street Police Station and given a good bashing regardless of whether he did anything or not. I mean, he was known to the coppers because he, he had this penchant for nicking cars, you know, just joyriding, going for a ride and dumping them. Didn't burn them or anything. Um, but because of this, uh, you know, this little habit he had, the police felt that they were able to uh, pick him up on sight and bash him. And... Uh, this uh, got under my skin a bit, you know, to more, more than a bit because I'd seen him on numerous occasions, you know, uh, come back to the hostel where we were staying uh, with his uh, face all bruised and battered. And um, 
not long before we we started uh, the little discussion group in Redfern that led to the Black Power Movement and the Aboriginal Legal Service, not long before the beginning of that, um, I found out one day that uh, this guy had been murdered by police in Newtown. No police person was ever brought to account for it, but uh, it I, I can clearly remember to this day that it had a very profound effect upon me, you know. This was one of my best friends and he was uh, he meant a lot to me because he really literally had taught me how to survive, you know, and on the mean streets of the big smoke, you know, as a young kid from the bush. And I think that that, uh, as much as anything else, also pushed me in when Paul Coe approached me in Redfin one day and said, listen, we're setting up a little discussion group of a few of us to see if we can talk about ways in which we might might be able to counter what these coppers are doing. And um, when Paul Coe put that to me, I said, no, no worries, I'm there. Partly because of the bashing that I'd got, but also because of what I'd uh, witnessed with Wayne and the fact that the, that the coppers had actually murdered him and gotten away with it. And how, how soon after, after that first meeting uh, did you decide to create the Aboriginal Legal Service? How did that come together well, in Redfern? And so it took a bit of a while. I mean, what you had in the very beginning was about three or four people. I think it was um, Gary Williams, my cousin, Paul Coe, myself, uh, a woman called Lynn uh, Thompson, uh, Lynn Craigie from um, Moree. Um, and we just started talking about things and and as I said at the time I'd read Malcolm X and we were I'd gotten my hands I think an American soldier had given us a copy of Seize the Time Bobby Seale's book on the Black Panthers and reading through those and and various other things we were very you know when we read about what the Panthers had done with their pig patrol in Oakland um, first of all we 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 related immediately to the problem of police harassment in a black community. What they were describing in Oakland, California for African-Americans was we were seeing exactly the same thing on the streets of Redfern against Aboriginal people. So we thought, uh, let's have a look at how they went about uh, countering that problem and let's learn from them. And we adopted and adapted the idea of the pig patrol. In Oakland, what they used to do is they created a pig patrol where panthers who were legally able to be armed under certain circumstances in California, um, they would arm themselves. If they saw a police car drive into their community, they'd jump in their car with their guns and they'd follow the police car. And if the police car stopped and the coppers got out and uh, became threatening, the panthers would get out, load their guns and say, we're here to defend the community. If you kill any of our brothers and sisters, we'll kill you. I mean, that was the uh, 1960s version of the Black Lives Matter movement. <laughs> um, and we thought this was a good idea in Redfern, you know. And and at one time when Paul Coe was a law student, he, he actually researched the laws in New South Wales to see if we could carry guns in New South Wales, but mercifully we couldn't. But we thought the basic idea of a pig patrol, in other words, monitoring, keeping tabs and recording what the police were doing in our community, 
unfortunately those days we didn't have mobile phones or little mini recorders that you could record. We had to record everything on uh, with a pen and paper. And so we started following the police around in Redfern, making, taking notes on everything they did. They used to regularly raid the, the uh, Empress Hotel, the legendary Big E in Redfern, mm. which was the Aboriginal pub of Redfern at the time. Uh, they'd raid that every Friday and Saturday night and we'd be waiting for them with our pen and papers, recording their numbers. In the early days, they still had their numbers on. We'd take down their numbers, we'd record who they were arresting, we'd rec- try and find out where they were taking them, we'd take the numbers of the vans that used to queue up out front of the hotel, and we gathered evidence. And in the long term, we were able to present that evidence to a, the Dean of the Law Faculty at the University of New South Wales, who um, reluctantly in the beginning, ultimately, agreed to assist us and then when we were, once we'd enlisted the assistance of someone of consequence, um, the next thing was, well, what do we do? And uh, Paul Coe, again, uh, pointed out that he'd read that in America uh, they'd set up these things that were shopfront free legal aid centres and he said to Professor Wooten, uh, why can't we do the same thing here? And uh, the Dean of the Law Faculty proceeded to tell Co uh, all 726 reasons why you couldn't do that in Australia. And less than six weeks later, we opened the first free shopfront legal aid centre for anyone in Australia, the Redfin Aboriginal Legal mm. Service. It's powerful stuff, really powerful <laughs> stuff. Um, just one final question before uh, we call it a day. Um, what do you think young people in Australia can do to get involved in the struggle today? What, what's your one kind of parting bit of advice that you'd like to see them take upon themselves to, to, to chip in? Um, a great old Aboriginal activist who uh, taught both me and Jackie, Jackie and I, <laughs> being professorial, um, was Chicka Dixon and one of his great many favourite sayings was we learn from each other and so another one of his sayings which he stole from that great Aboriginal philosopher Maud Zedong was um, educate yourself then educate the people. So essentially um, the first and foremost things that people can do uh, to help us is to help themselves which is to, to educate themselves more in, uh, and I'm talking to broader, the broader Australian community now, the Anglo-Australians, my brother and sisters in Anglo-Australia, um, I'd put it to you that there is a lot you need to learn about your own society, you know. Don't come to us thinking that you can help us. The problem, the primary problem that confronts Aboriginal people in Australia today is racism. And racism is essentially born of fear and ignorance. So the first thing you need to do is educate yourself as to why so many of your relatives say such extraordinarily racist things about Aboriginal people. I say to my students, uh, one of the first things you need to do if you want to find out the real nature of the problem in Australia is go out there and find yourself a racist. You don't have to look too far. There's, there's, there's not a short supply of them. In fact, the most handy racist you're likely to find is within your own family. And once you find that racist member of your family, um, then you attempt to 
talk reasonably and rationally to them. And once you do that, then you'll begin to realise just how difficult a problem that all of us are confronted with, you know. Uh, ignorance is a, an enormous thing to overcome, and even within yourself, you need to understand more about the nature of your own white privilege. Uh, the, the beginnings of change begin within yourself. Look in the mirror and um, examine yourself, your family, your family's history, the history of the community around you. Know whose land you live upon, you know. So the process begins there. It begins within yourself. And then as you begin to educate yourself as to what the real nature of the problem and Australia itself is, then it, the answers about what you do next will appear in front of you. Um, that's the best answer I can give on that. Jackie, what are you? Well, being a student of Professor Foley for many years, um, the, it is absolutely important for people to become informed but not to simply read the information that's on the surface, to look at the historical influences in Australia and understand how that has shaped them as a person. Because we are all linked together uh, in trying to bring about something better in Australia. And unless you're committed to making things better for everybody, you cannot support Aboriginal people and our commitment to overturn discrimination and racism. And uh, in closing, um, <laughs> I have closed. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for, for being with us today. Litmus Media.